Our topic, uh, we're looking at how John 5, 28 and 29 completely disproves full preterism. And this is an answer to the message that Zach, what's his last name? I forgot his last name. But anyway, uh, that a full preterist did on my stuff. I'm going to read from 24 to 29. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who hear, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now today we're going to actually get into more exegesis of the actual passage. And the first thing we're going to ask is, does grave mean grave? In John 5.28, Jesus shifts from the importance of spiritual life, which is already taking place during his gospel preaching ministry, verse 25, to something future. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. 28b to 29a, the first thing that we need to establish is the meaning of the word grave. Does this word refer to literal graves or tombs in which there are dead bodies, physical bodies? Or is it a people referring uh, the souls of men living in Hades? The word grave, tomb, or sepulcher used throughout the New Testament is it's M-N-E-M-E-I-O-N. Meni meon. Graves, translated graves, uh, Matthew 27, 52 and 53, Luke 11.44, John 5.28, Grave, John 11.17 and 31, Acts 13.29. Revelation 11.9 uses the closely related synonym, M-N-E-I-A. The word is rooted in the idea of a memorial, monument, or remembrance over time, and came to signify the grave or graves where monuments, remembrance markers, or monument stones would be placed. Tacitus, the Roman historian, History 5.5, expressly says in noting the contrast with Roman custom that it was a matter of piety with the Jews to bury rather than to burn the dead bodies. According to the Mosaic Law, burning was resolved either for the living who had been found guilty of unnatural sins, Leviticus 20, verse 4 and 21.9, or for those who died under a curse, as in the case of Achan and his family, who after they had been stoned to death were with all their belongings burned with fire. Joshua 7.25 In the days of our Lord, it was customary, if a family had the money, to purchase a family tomb, preferably carved out of a rock in a hillside or cliff, with many carved niches in which a body wrapped with sweet-smelling spices and incense could be placed. The Jews did not embalm the dead like the Egyptians. They buried them within three hours of death, uh, wrapping their body with cloth, with a bunch of ointments and spices and frankincense and all those type of things to make it smell better. The Old Testament Jews, unlike full preterists, believe in a literal bodily resurrection. That's, that's an established fact. The Jews believed in a bodily resurrection. 
every example where use of the word in the New Testament refers to literal graves or tombs. In Matthew 27, 52 and 53, this word refers to the grave or tombs that were opened when Jesus died on the cross. Literal dead bodies of saints arose out of these graves and appeared in Jerusalem. Now, scholars are not agreed as to whether they were mortal bodies that would live and die again, or glorified immortal bodies as a kind of first fruits, showing the efficacy or power of Christ's atonement, his sacrifice. There's disagreement. In Luke 11.44, the word refers to literal graves, which men walk over. In Acts 13.29, this word is used to describe the literal tomb in which the dead physical body of Jesus was laid after he was taken down from the cross. In Revelation 11.9, the word menamia uh, uh, refers to the literal graves in which the dead physical bodies of the two witnesses were placed. The word is used for a literal tomb, including the tombs of Abraham, Jesus, or David. Mark 5.5, 5, Luke 8.27, 23.53, 24.1, Acts 2.29, and 7.16. <coughs> All the commentaries on John 28 consulted, and I have the most commentaries I have on a single book are John and Romans, and I've got about 30 commentaries on John, um, including the full preterist, J. Stuart Russell, argue that it refers to a literal grave. Even J. Stuart Russell, who says this, There can be no doubt that the passage just quoted, verses 28 and 29, refers to the literal resurrection from the dead. That's J. Stuart Russell. Teach that Jesus is speaking about literal graves that contain dead physical bodies. If Christ wanted to contain the idea that he could, that, that, uh, of a place that contains the souls or spirits of dead people, whether Christian or not, he would have used the word Hades, not mani meon. If we are going to treat the language used in this passage honestly, or use proper historical, grammatical, theological, that is the analogy of scripture, exegesis, we must admit that grave means grave. Show me where it doesn't mean grave. Well, let's take here a full preterist tactic refuted. Now, full preterists going back as far as J. Stuart Russell attempt to place John 5, 28, and 29 in their AD 70 paradigm. By comparing the phrase, the hour is coming, verse 28, with our Lord's statement to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 23. And um, Zach Davis, I remember his last name, Zach Davis does the same thing when he talks about Matthew 5. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In John 4.21, the phrase, the hour is coming, is used without and now is. When people will not need to go to Jerusalem or uh, the mountain chosen by the Samaritans. This occurred only a few years after this statement when Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Like I said in, in the first sermon, once Jesus died the cross and rose from the dead, Jerusalem loses its significance totally. It's not a sacred city anymore. It's not special. It's all, it's all over. Now there's the International Church of Christ. That is what is important. Therefore, we are told the formula, the hour is coming. All, and here's um, Russell. The hour is coming always denotes that the event referred to is not far distant. Not far distant, it brings with it a comparatively brief period. Okay, because uh, the period between when he talked to the Samaritan woman and when he rose from the dead, a few years at most. 
Well, the problem with this argument is that the expression the hour is coming is indefinite and is essentially equivalent to saying the time is coming or sometime in the future this will occur. This attempt to connect John 5.28 to 4.21 in order to fit it with an AD 70 paradigm is arbitrary and illegitimate for the content of the promises is radically different and the winner fulfillment can only be determined when the event promised comes to pass. Yeah, the one to the Samaritan woman came to pass within a few short years. But did physical bodies come out of tombs, and we're talking about all the dead unbelievers and all the dead Christians, when did that occur in AD 70? And the answer is no. The alternatives of near resurrections from graves in the soon time period are limited and totally unsatisfactory. One could argue that it refers to the resurrections that happened when Christ died on the cross, Matthew 27 52. But John 5 28 29 describes a universal resurrection followed by judgment. All those who have done evil, all those who have done good. The all who are in their grave shall hear refers to the whole number of the dead, whether Christian or non Christian. For since by man, that is Adam, came death, even so by man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Matthew 27.52 says, Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Not all the saints, and no unbelievers were raised. John 5.28-29 speaks of many millions of bodies. One could argue that a physical resurrection occurred in AD 70, but not only was such an amazing event not escape secular historians. Imagine if all the dead people and all the graveyards came out. Would that be noticed by people? You think it might be noticed, don't you think? But archaeologists notice an established fact that ancient tombs still contain dead bodies, and we know that the pharaohs have been dug up, the mummies of the dead have been dug up from Egypt. Another alternative would be to argue that it is all metaphorical and only refers to a spiritual resurrection. You know, like, like maybe regeneration. The problem with this view is that Jesus already discussed the spiritual resurrection and conversion in verses 24 and 25. John 5.28 is introduced as a new topic. Do not marvel at this. In other words, what I'm about to say is going to blow your mind and uh, don't act as though this is impossible. I can do this. With a new time indicator, this event is wholly future. A time is coming. There is no end now is. With a new promise, our Lord did not simply say the dead, as in math in verse 25, but says all who are in the graves. His voice shall be the call that will summon all the dead from their graves. There's simply no way that one can argue that regeneration and conversions are wholly future when Christ has already presented them as present. So it's something different. This is wholly future. This is something dealing with graves. This leads the other alternative that we've already discussed to a point. This is the idea that we need to take the term uh, meon as Hades and not a literal tomb. <clears throat> this interpretation says that the destruction of the temple coincides with the end of the Mosaic Law, and it is the end of the Mosaic Law that allows Jesus to set all the saints trapped in Hades free to go to heaven to be with God. And we looked at that in detail. But let us summarize the insurmountable, insurmountable problems associated with this interpretation. Number one, 
While the word Hades can refer to the grave, it's used that way occasionally, or I could say even rarely, or the place where the souls of the dead go, usually the damned, the word Mene Meon is never used as a compartment for human spirits, but always refers to literal graves, where dead bodies are. Okay, that's a problem. We have to, you know, when we do exegesis, we have to interpret words. What do the words actually mean? One's interpretation should not contradict the plain meaning of words. The original audience would not view many own as a compartment for spirits, but as a tomb for physical bodies. The graves, twice minois, better translated tombs, and this is uh, A.T. Robertson. No, this is Marvin Vincent. Two words are used in the New Testament for the place of burial. Taphos and mene meon or mema. The former emphasizes the idea of burial, thapto to bury, the latter of preserving the memory of the dead, from memisco to remind. End of quote. A graveyard is a place of land full of graves with memorial headstones. And if you don't believe me, you can see the Theological Dictionary of the Greek New Testament, 4, 680, and uh, the, the BAGD, 524C, and Thayer, 416B. There's nobody out there, and Thayer's a Unitarian, he's not even a Christian, there's nobody out there who agrees with the full preterist position on this verse. <clears throat> Number two. The idea that the actual physical temple had to be destroyed to end the Mosaic Law's control explicitly contradicts Scripture and has zero exegetical e evidence. It detracts from the meaning and significance of Jesus' atoning death, which ended the Old Order, and arbitrarily invents a false teaching as a substitute for the physical bodily resurrection. It places a temporal judgment sent by the exalted Christ at the right hand of God into a spiritual salvific category, which is unjetical unexegetical and theologically is a denial of Jesus' atonement's effect on the ceremonial law, the temple, and the Mosaic law as a condemning letter. That's very critical. That's why when you do exegesis, you really want to know theology. <coughs> Number three. The full preterist has an explanation as to why AD 70 is the time when the souls of saints are led out of Hades that we have seen is totally false, by the way, has no evidence whatsoever. But they do not explain why the unbelieving souls are brought out only to be cast back in. Perhaps the lake of fire is a different and worse place than Gehenna or hell. The Gentiles are not under the Mosaic Law or the Temple system. The end of the Jewish age is significant as the Gospel goes forth unto the Gentiles, but it holds no salvific or condemning influence on the Gentiles except as noted. It contributes to the gospel's dominance among the Gentiles. Okay, so they have this very sophisticated argument they've made up out of thin air as to why the Old Testament saints are trapped in Hades. But how do you explain the unbelievers who are still in their guilt? Why are they trapped in Hades and, and get to re get released? And then, of course, sent right back. Number four. The text plainly says that all believers and all unbelievers who have died and are in the graves or tombs will come forth. Verse 29. They will come out ek purisantai, future middle indicative of ek purumai, of physical graves. Come out 
of physical graves. That is what the language clearly means. If the text was not teaching a bodily resurrection, then why does Jesus say tombs, which is never used of Hades in the whole New Testament? Instead of Hades, which on occasion can mean tombs, but usually refers to the abode for dead souls or spirits, and usually the wicked dead. In fact, if I had more time, I'd look into this. Is it ever used of the non-wicked dead in the New Testament except for grave? Number five. The focus of our Lord's teaching on the universal resurrection of believers and unbelievers for the purpose of judgment by Jesus Christ is turned into a partial judgment. Why do I say that? Well, the vast majority of human beings were born after AD 70. Million, you know, billions of people have been born after AD 70. And they don't get to partake of a public judgment. That is largely secret. The judgment is largely secret. The final judgment, that is a crucial aspect of our Lord's glorification, is reduced almost exclusively to a judgment of Old Covenant era peoples. The New Covenant era and the spread of the gospel throughout planet Earth is reduced to virtually an afterthought or epilogue to history. Now, don't you find that a little strange? Moreover, in order to explain their non-universal judgment and how those after AD 70 are judged by Christ, they replace the final judgment at the end of history with the idea that each person who dies after AD 70 receives a personal one-on-one -on -one judgment. So once again, there's something that's not in the Bible at all, it's not in the text, that they intrude on the text. Like a number of their teachings that flow from their end of everything prophesied by AD 70 paradigm, this idea has no scriptural support whatsoever. They simply made it up out of thin air to solve one of the many theological and exegetical problems that their AD 70 concept leads to. But what about Hebrews 9.27? And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Does not this verse support the full preterist's contention? No. It does not solve it at all for a number of reasons. First, the book of Hebrews was written before AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, so this passage cannot be applied to a supposedly new situation after AD 70. Second, the author of Hebrews is simply pointing out that once judgment occurs after death, how long after death is not being addressed. Every man is mortal because of sin and must die physically. Every man who dies physically must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. Ecclesiastes 12.14 God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 3.23 Death comes to all, because all are sinners. It is the inevitable consequence of turning away from the life giver. Excuse me, Romans 3.23 and 5.12 Hence the connection of death with judgment. <clears throat> For while death itself is a judgment that sinful man has brought on himself, it is not the final judgment, which is something distinct, follows death. According to the writer of Hebrews theology, death is not a normal natural part of God's creation, but is a judgment for sin leading to the final judgment. Orthodox professing Christians do not have to assign unique different meanings to plain words in the text or invent completely new doctrines out of thin air to fit an imposed paradigm invented in the 19th century. 
The author of Hebrews rejects the idea that God created death as very good before the fall. If death is very good, Genesis 1.31, and totally normal, then why does touching a dead body render a priest ritually unclean under the Old Testament law? Leviticus 21.1-4. If physical death is totally normal. If death is very good, then why did the announcement of death among ancient Jews lead to great lamentation and weeping? See, for example, Mark 5.38 and following. The Jew's role is important in producing the Messiah and receiving special revelation. But the end of the Old Covenant age is not the end of the world or the beginning of the final state. Their forcing of all prophecy and the fulfillment of everything into an AD 70 paradigm not only leaves us without a real literal universal bodily resurrection, a universal judgment, and a literal bodily second coming of Christ, a literal rapture, etc., but also forces them to redefine the eternal state as one in which sin, suffering, evil, death, disease has not been defeated, but continues on theoretically forever. What kind of victory is that? Is that a victory? In other words, Christ's comprehensive cosmic victory never takes effect. Thus, not only do full preterists deny a number of fundamentals of the Christian faith, but they teach that ultimately, Jesus' salvation is not fully a success. That's a serious heresy. It leaves the world in an evil, sinful mess forever. Such thinking is demonic. In addition, their concept of an eternal state with evil, sin, suffering, calamity, death, terror, pain, and sorrow forces them to argue that God's pre-fall creation contained not sin, but the full effects of sin. It is, you know, the death and everything. It is almost blasphemous, for it makes God the author or creator of evil, not man, a valid secondary agent. Did God create nature red in tooth and claw? Did God create death and say it's very good? Have you ever watched an animal caught by a hawk? Have you ever watched a lion rip uh, you know, an animal to death? It's not pleasant, and it's not very good. If you think it is, then you're a sadomasochist. Number six. If everything was fulfilled by A.D. 70 and Satan as well as all the demons were cast into the lake of fire, one would expect a substantial reduction of evil activity over the, um, over the full preterist very short millennium. Not 1,000 years, but about 40 years. Yet there is no change. An eternal state full of sin, evil, suffering, pain, war, plague, and death does not comport with the full eschatological victory as taught in the New Testament. Number seven. The full preterist does not have a logical or legitimate explanation of the passages that support the Orthodox Christian interpretation of John 5, 28 and 29. Note the following passages. Matthew 5, 29 to 30 reads. No, I think that's supposed to be 10. Uh, that's not 5, 29, it's 10. If your right eye causes you... Oh, that is 5. Oh, I'm talking about John, John 5, 28 to 9. Matthew 5, 29-30 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off 
and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So he's saying radical, totally radical action must be taken against those things that cause us to commit sin in order to avoid a whole person, your whole body with eyes and hands to be cast into hell. Gehenna. And see Matthew 18.9 and Mark 9.43-48, which says basically the same thing. Now one could argue that plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand is hyperbolic. Then the threat of having one's whole body, Greek soma, cast into hell, is figurative or hyperbolic as well. But one cannot make such an argument regarding Matthew 10.28. Let me just read you about the word soma. When speaking of human beings, the word body, soma, refers to the human body as a whole, whether living, Matthew 6.22, or dead, Matthew 27.52. That is the physical body. Handle my hands and feet, for it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Luke 23.52, that man, the man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The human soul or spirit can exist apart from the physical body, 2 Corinthians 12, 2-3, and goes to heaven or hell after death, Luke 16, 23-24, Luke 23, 43, Matthew 5, 22, Philippians 1, 23, Matthew 5, 23, and 23, 33. The word body is used for the physical aspect of man in contrast to man's spirit, 1 Corinthians 5, 3. The word body can also be used metaphorically for the whole body of Christ or church. Ephesians 1, 23, or Colossians 1, 18, and 22, and 24. When Jesus speaks about individuals who do not repent having their body cast into hell, there is no sound logical or exegetical way to make such a statement metaphorical. Body means what it means. It means a physical body. In fact, if the statement is not literal then the warning to fear God does not have the additional reason. In other words, the statement makes no sense. Now here's Matthew 10, 28. And this is the one, I, I want to hear uh, Mr. Davis, uh, Mac Davis, uh, uh, Zach Davis, address this passage. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear whom is able to destroy both body and soul, soul and body in hell. Now the word destroy refers to the ruin, perdition, destruction, and suffering of hell. This verse can only refer to the whole person after the judgment day being cast into the hell or the lake of fire. And it is proof of a literal bodily resurrection right before the final judgment. Persecutors can hurt you, they can torture your body, they can kill you, they can kill your body, the physical aspect of man. But they cannot kill the soul, which is immaterial. Correct? And a lot of saints were killed and tortured by the Romans, eaten by lions, burned in oil, set on fire, crucified, you name it, the Romans did it all. Caligula used to have uh, dinner parties with Christians uh, on poles covered with pitch and they'd light them on fire. He thought that was entertainment. God, however, can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, if the word body, soma, is used literally in verse 28a, then it must be literal in 28b as well. Otherwise, the passage is nonsense. 
You understand? This is why this passage is so difficult for full preterists. If it's literal here, and it's applied here, it has to be literal here. If there was no literal bodily resurrection under judgment, then Christ's statement is not actually true. Yahweh has the power and the full intent of casting his enemies with their full person, both parts of their being, body and soul, into hell. And this teaching reveals divine justice, as Francis Turretin explains. Quote, from the justice of God, which demands that not a different thing should be punished from what sins. That one thing should fight and another be crowned. But that the very same body which sinned be punished. That the very same body which is here a temple of grace be the temple of glory in heaven, which however would not be the case if other bodies should be given to us. Or if no bodies were judged at all, uh, end of quote, or no bodies at all, were judged at all, which is the full preterist position. And he's arguing against those who say that uh, God doesn't resurrect people, he just simply creates a new body out of, no, out of nothing. And he's saying, no, that's not true. Somehow he, he raises up the original body. That's Institutes of Electric Theology. The resurrection of the just and the unjust have this in common, that in both bodies and soul, that both in both bodies and souls are reunited. But in the case of the former, this results in perfect life, while in the case of the latter, it is in the extreme penalty of death or Gehenna. John 5.29 Now, Jesus Christ is responsible. He's the one responsible for the doctrine that unbelievers in both body and soul shall be cast into eternal perdition. Jesus taught this. The Son of the living God, the Messiah, who is Lord over heaven and earth, is the one with whom full preterists are in conflict. Not me, just a peon, a little country preacher, but Christ himself. Our Lord is also responsible for the teaching of a universal judgment of all men on the same day. Matthew eleven twenty two and 24, John six thirty nine, Acts 17, 31, Romans 2, 16. Another doctrine of Jesus rejected by full preterists. Full preterists are in agreement with the Athenian philosophers who mocked Paul when he spoke about the resurrection of the dead in Acts 17, 32. They liked hearing different philosophical things, but when he talked about the resurrection of the physical body, which the Greeks hated the idea, they mocked him. If the apostle was only speaking about the movement of immaterial souls, which is the teaching of full preterists, there would have been no offense at all. It was the material aspect of the resurrection that offended the Athenians, who were Platonists. They view the physical body as kind of gross. You know, it gets smelly and it dies and it rots. And, you know, they thought it was a lesser, on a lesser scale of being than pure spirit. spirit. Pure spirit, that's good. But the body, that's gross. And you depart with the body. So the idea of bringing back the body to them was disgusting to the Greeks. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body, that is the same body in which a person was buried or deposited in the sea, etc., is a cardinal, fundamental, essential tenet of Christianity. Its connection to Christ's resurrection and emphasis in the New Testament made it so. In fact, it is an essential element of the biblical doctrine of salvation. For as a real person sinned and fell, Adam... A true person, the theanthropic mediator, had to live a sinless life, suffer and die a sacrificial death, and arise out of the dead to save mankind, the elect, or Christ's sheep. Scripture teaches that, came, that Jesus came to save the whole person, not simply disembodied spirits. 
Without the doctrine of the resurrection, the glorification of the saints is not really a glorification, but merely a transference from Hades to heaven. That's all it is. There is no glorification. The early church fathers maintained the doctrine of the bodily resurrection from the dead with great energy and a determined dogmatism. With unanimity and dedication to orthodoxy, they fight against skeptics, heretics, and Neoplatonists. The Nicene and post-Nicene fathers continued this dedication and against heretics put the literal resurrection into their creeds. They considered it an essential element of the faith. It cannot be denied. Read the early ecumenical councils. The Orthodox view passed into the Middle Ages without change. It was held by all the Reformers, and it made its way into all the Lutheran, Anglican, and Reformed symbols. It has been challenged in the 19th century and following by full preterists, not on the basis of a careful exegetical analysis of all the reverent resurrection passages, but really on the basis of their interpretation of time indicators. And we have to emphasize this once again. This is crucial. They take a position on the time indicators, and then that forces them to redefine several critical doctrines. Can't have a literal bodily resurrection. Can't have a literal bodily return of Christ. Can't have a literal rapture. Can't have a glorification of the body. And you have to believe that death is natural. Death occurred before the fall. Several critical doctrines are denied to make their time indicators fit. Very interesting. If their view of the time indicators was accurate, then there would be no need for them to come up with such a bizarre, forced, unexegetical um, explanations of so many clear passages. Passages over which all branches and expressions of Christianity have been in essential agreement for almost 2,000 years. Now, I agree that a number of the passages which speak of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and Israel in AD 70 have been neglected and frequently misinterpreted. But the full preterist attempts to redefine several clear doctrines that are based on plain, unambiguous passages has been a complete failure. It's a disaster. Their views on the second bodily coming of Christ, the resurrection of the body, the rapture, the final judgment, the eternal state or consummate kingdom, as well as the effects of the fall on creation, are absurd, untenable, ridiculous, and easily disproved. And I want Gary DeMar to answer these things. How does he deal with all these passages? He's not a dummy. And it's obvious that old Zach there is pretty smart too. Now, why did full preterists deny the Orthodox Christian position that spiritual death resulted also in physical death for mankind? Why? There is not only zero evidence for their position, but the covenant of works given to Adam assumes that his regular sinless human existence would have become eternal glorified life, that is, Adam would have been changed so that he could no longer be tempted or sin, if he had obeyed God's command. He would have become immortal in such a way that he could never sin. Moreover, even after the fall, humans would live for hundreds of years. Enosh, 905 years. Uh, Canaan, 910 years. Mahalalel, 895 years. Jared, 962 years, etc. Yahweh greatly shortened man's life to around 70 years of age due to man's corruption and evil. If a shortened life is a type of sanction for sinning, then why would sinless humans die at all? In addition, 
during God's description of the curse on mankind due to Adam's sin, we have the statement, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19b. Exclusion from God's fellowship in the garden means that a drastic change has overtaken man because of the fall. From fellowship and life, he has moved to a state where death is inevitable. He can now only approach God through the death and sacrificial blood of clean animals. If men don't die physically, if death doesn't bring death, physical death, if sin doesn't bring physical death, why does the death of a clean animal have to occur? Why? Why the death of a clean animal that points to Christ? Because the penalty for sin involves physical death. And here's what G. Alders writes. He's a Dutch commentator. This was translated. Quote, some interpreters understand this only as a recognition of the natural end of human life. In their view, then, the entire threat issued at the time of the trial uh, command was no more than, than idle words. They hold that, um, that all we have here is that human mortality was assumed in the paradise narrative. It has no connection with the penalty for sin. The original pronouncement threatened immediate death as soon as man transgressed the command of God. And this never materialized. Instead of immediate death, the guilty pair were sentenced to other punishments. In response, it should be observed that the statement, dust you are and to dust you will return, does not refer to the natural termination of man's life. It is a direct reference to the original command. Here man is told that the penalty that has been pronounced on that, at that time would definitely be carried out. It is striking, however, that this statement comes here at the end of the sentencing and that it obviously does not imply immediate death. Man would surely die, but the timing of the execution of that sentence was relegated to an undetermined future. Others have claimed that the threat of the original command did not go into immediate effect, and they have pointed, out, pointed to the spiritual death to which men and women immediately were subject, subjected. Although the latter is true, we seriously question that this was the intent of the pronouncement made at the time of the command. This pronouncement certainly must have included physical death also. In fact, it seems most likely that its primary intent was to condemn the sinner to physical death. Thus, it is difficult to deny that what God had threatened was not immediately put into effect. The only conclusion that can be drawn from this delay in the execution of the sentence is that a merciful God immediately evidences grace to fallen humanity. Those who object to the use of the term grace in this connection can call it by another name if they wish, but the fact remains that God did not immediately execute the full punishment he had pronounced against the guilty. Even so, this evidence of grace does not cancel the pronouncement of judgment. There is delay, but the punishment is not canceled. Moreover, such an expression of God's grace does not indicate that his original pronouncement were idle wor was idle words. The grace that was extended in no way diminishes the integrity of the pronouncement and the seriousness of its ultimate execution. End of quote. <clears throat> that the curse for sin was accompanied by grace is not only indicated by the delay in physical death, but also by the fact that Yahweh killed animals to provide coverings for Adam and Eve. He didn't have to kill them physically immediately because God, Yahweh himself provided a substitute that pointed to Jesus Christ. This killing and slaughter was the first typical sacrifice for sin. In addition, God's plan was always to save the elect through the sacrificial death of Christ. See Ephesians 1, 3-12. This required that Adam and Eve had to be given time to have a family so that a line to the Messiah could be established. You see that? There was grace involved, the slaying of animals. They were allowed 
to have a family and live for a time. The full preterist must deny that physical death is a result of sin, because if it is, then redemption must include not simply spiritual resurrection and bestowal of life, that is regeneration of the new birth, which of course leads to conversion. See John uh, 2, 3 to 8 and 5, 25 and Ephesians 2, 1 and 4 to 6, but also a physical resurrection. John 5, 20 to 9, Acts 17, 32, 24, 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 56, Philippians 3.21, etc., and glorification. Philippians 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, 52-54, Romans 8.30, etc. But not only does Scripture emphatically and clearly reject the full preterist position, but if physical death is not the result of sin, then why did Jesus have to die and be placed into a tomb to achieve a perfect salvation? There is no point in him dying. If, if death is natural, if death is good, how could death and being placed in a tomb be part of his humiliation? Which all theologians agree, from Justin Martyr through Augustine to Calvin to the present. They all agree that it is part of his humiliation. But if death is good, if get, get, getting put in a tomb is good, why did Jesus have to die? He didn't have to die if, if you accept their position. And this is what's so bad about their heresy. It changes the doctrine of salvation. It perverts the doctrine of salvation. The full preterist position is unbiblical and irrational. Its exceptionally serious error redefines, out, uh, radiates outward and perverts several crucial fundamental doctrines. Now a heretic is one who uses terminology of the Bible, classical orthodoxy, and historic theology, but with an entirely different sense from that intended by the authors of Scripture. And, and what Zach uh, will do, uh, she'll just say, well, they'd have their presuppositions, and we have our presuppositions. No, no, no. Presuppositions have to be derived from Scripture. And their presuppositions are not derived from Scripture. Now, they have a, a lot of uh, time indicators that show that there, you know, there was a lot of talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but that's a temporal judgment. It's not salvific. It helped the Christians out a little bit, but their persecution had a long ways to go under the Romans. And, you know, it helped with the Jews. Full preterists have carefully redefined several crucial terms in order to fit into their new, unbiblical, unconfessional system of thought. We are asked to believe that God created death and that it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Souls are transferred from Hades to heaven with no scriptural evidence. Such views are totally untenable and radically unscriptural. We ask those who have embraced this dangerous heresy to repent and to return to Christian orthodoxy before it is too late. This is a definite personal appeal to Gary DeMar, who's written a number of really good books. And he's very, very intelligent. He even wrote a book with Greg Bonson, who was probably the one of the best theologians of the latter half of the 20th century. Or we'd say apologist. He didn't write a lot of theology, but he wrote a lot of stuff on apologetics. So repent. Zach Davis, repent. What you're teaching is nonsense. It's heretical. And we'll end with this, Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, I did this. <coughs> what Zach does is really smart. He just 
he'll pick a he, he doesn't deal with I have multiple passages and he just will pick one he'll cherry pick one and he'll talk about one passage for the whole time well I've done this here in the passages John 5 28 to 29 and uh, that one passage alone if you interpret it honestly if you do not import alien views onto the meaning of the Greek words and you look at how the Greek words are used in the New Testament and in context it completely disproves full preterism and you can talk time indicators till you're blue in the face and I agree I'm a partial preterist I agree that a lot of time indicators do speak of the destruction of Jerusalem but there's no way in the world that you can get around the New Testament teaching on the second bodily coming of Christ the bodily resurrection of all men both wicked and uh, Christian, the rapture, and the meaning of the resurrection of the body, and the glorification of the saints. You can't get around any of that, and the nature of the eternal state. It's not a place full of wickedness and death. There are no, is no more death. There is no more tears. There is no more sorrow. So let us pray. Father, we thank you. What a precious salvation that Christ has achieved. What an amazing salvation, a perfect salvation. A time is coming when there will be no more sin, there will be no more evil or suffering or death because Christ achieved a perfect, comprehensive salvation both individually, corporately, and cosmically. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.